the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. It's time for a conversation about the things we share in common. Our common hopes, our common fears, our common struggles. Together, we'll wrestle with the questions that we all have about the issues that affect our lives. This is The Common Good. Now, here are your hosts, Brian Fromm and Ian Simpkins. Hey, everybody. Welcome to The Common Good on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Alongside Ian Simpkins, my name is Brian Fromm. We are excited to have you joining us on this Tuesday afternoon. Just some of the particulars first. You can find us on Facebook. It's there that we post articles and kind of keep the conversation going. You can follow us there at The Common Good Radio Show. That's The Common Good Radio Show. On Twitter, at Common Good Talk. At Common Good Talk. We're also putting stuff up there, uh, things that, that hopefully would be of interest to you. Uh, if you miss any of the show or you just like to podcast it, you can find our podcast wherever it is you find podcasts. What we ask is that you go ahead and subscribe, rate, review, uh, and uh, that certainly helps us out. And it kind of gets the word out there for people, kind of moves our podcast up. Do you think we can get to the top of the religion lists? Do you think we're like a year from that on iTunes? Do you think maybe a year, year and a half? Don't even know how that works. I don't either, but I think it's when they subscribe, rate, review. <laughs> so there's no harm in me saying yes. I guess. Sure. We'll how get, does that well, work? Yeah, we'll get on top of this hypothetical mountain that we're not sure actually exists. <laughs> it's it's an actual mountain. We just don't know how to hypothetically get to the top uh, of that. That's true. How did you get there? No, so. not hypothetically. We realistically don't know how to get there. We are, uh, we are grateful for those of you who are joining us. And uh, it's fun. It's fun to be with you each day here from 4 until 6. Uh, well, let's just jump right into politics. How does that sound? <laughs> Sounds terrible. Let's dive right in. And I want to talk to you about uh, a well-known uh, evangelical by the name of Ralph Reed. Many of you probably know Ralph Reed. He has kind of, over the last, I don't know, 10, 20, 30 years, been one of the guys at the forefront of the coming together of evangelical Christianity uh, and politics. Uh, so he is the Faith and Freed Coalition founder. Uh, and a self-proclaimed devoted Trump supporter, uh, and he recently wrote a book. And uh, I want us, whether you are a supporter of Donald Trump or not, I think some of the things he says is problematic. And so let me just give you some of the background, and then I'm going to let Ian just jump in. Mm, That's a terrible idea. So let me just start by saying that he just wrote a book, and they changed the title of it. The, uh, The original title, this is not being sarcastic, the original title was Render to God and Trump. It was called Render to God and Trump. They have since changed the title. It's going to come out leading up to the election. Uh, it has since been changed for God and Country, the Christian case for Trump. For God and Country, the Christian case for Trump. In the book, uh, Ralph Reed, who is one of Trump's biggest Christian backers, argues that the American evangelicals, quote, have a moral obligation to enthusiastically back the president. Why? Well, Reed says evangelicals have a duty to defend the incumbent Republican leader against, quote, the stridently anti-Christian, anti-Semitic and pro-abortion agenda of the progressive uh, left. And uh, so let's leave it right there for a second. (laughs) 
Uh, let's leave it right there. What are your thoughts? Again, I again, and it's going to be hard not to lay all the cards on the table, but this isn't about whether you support the president or not. What do you think about an influential kind of uh, evangelical leader again saying that we as Christians have a moral obligation uh, to not just support? We all think, regardless of poli- of of party, we should be praying and supporting in that yes, way the president. Of course, of course. But when he says support, he means vote for. Uh-huh. He means. Uh, make sure, do all you can to help him get reelected, stand up for all of that stuff. So what do you think about an influential evangelical leader? I should say another influential evangelical leader saying, quote, we have a moral obligation to enthusiastically support President Trump. Uh, To to put it in the category of a moral imperative Mm -hmm. is problematic on so many levels. And for anyone that's wondering, would you be saying this if it was someone for the left, the answer is yes. Mm-hmm. Both, I think I can speak for Brian. Yes, like, you can. The statement, the sentiment, the posture, not to mention like the theological gymnastics to make. And again, I'm not saying the issues that he stands for aren't massively significant through and through. And we've quoted Scott Saul's a number of times saying to really follow Jesus means you're going to upset people on the right and the left. Yep. That's, that's how that's going to work, period. But to frame this, though, as this pure unequivocal allegiance and obedience to human being is so problematic. So problematic. And, and for me, the, the moral obligation is just the extra icing on the cake. Just this added sort of layer of, of, I, I don't know what to, I don't know what to call it necessarily. Cause if I can't tell if he's, uh, is he being kitschy? Like, is he being, does he think it's like a, like the render to God and Trump thing? You even said it like, I'm not, Joking, I'm not being yeah. sarcastic. This actually was the original title. Is he trying to do it tongue-in-cheek so that we'll talk about it? Or do you think this is like really true to his convictions? I think it's a yes and a yes. Yeah. I don't think tongue-in-cheek. I think he's being provocative. You've got to get your book out there, right? This book is not coming out yet. It's going to come out as a lead-up to the election. Um, but also, uh, so I do think he's doing it to be provocative, but I think he means it. I think he means it 100%. I think Hmm. uh, Ralph Reed, I I think there's others that we've talked about, whether they be, you know, Franklin Graham, Robert Jeffers, and others who seem to be pushing a a belief that says, you know, it's not we think that Donald Trump is the best president for America and for Christians, but that all of you need to think that. Hmm. That, again, to use his words, that we have a moral imperative, a moral obligation, that there is something bigger at play and that Donald Trump is the champion to ward off all that is evil from the Democratic Party uh, is, uh, for one, it really paints all Christianity, all evangelicals with a really broad brush. That unfortunately is not inaccurate considering 81% of white evangelicals self-proclaimed voted for Donald Trump. That's true. Man, it's just so dangerous. Like you said, when you start taking human beings and putting into them moral obligation, and this is a non-negotiable, like that's uh, that's really messy. Do you see in your mind a satisfactory amount of disagreement with this from Christian leaders? Like in your experience, since this uh, article came out, have you have you been satisfied with the number of prominent voices saying yeah this isn't okay i have been i don't think most people know about this yet the the real question will be when the actual book comes out i think there's going to be a firestorm when it comes out uh what makes me happy is i think most of the people that i interact with 
both in the church, right. I should say church leaders, but right. also just people in the church, also think this is ridiculous. It uh, doesn't mean they don't vote for Donald Trump or they do. Like, I've got friends who do vote for him and support him, those that won't vote for him. Right. But I don't hear anybody saying we have a moral obligation to vote for him, that it's like like this is Armageddon and get get behind our, our, our leader. Right. Um, I think when the, but but and then I hear most people getting frustrated that people who do speak like this seem to be the prominent voices that paint all of evangelical Christianity. I think once this book actually comes out, you're going to hear a lot about it, which he's going to get his book sales. But which, again, maybe that was his goal. Oh, I guess. that's always a goal. Right. No doubt. No I mean, doubt. it does come down to dollars and cents. But like, that's part of why I want to ask, because it's I know that even responses the things like this also have similar motivations of clicks and shares and dollars. Like I'm not naive to to know that, that that's true on both sides of this. Uh, that's why I kind of ask, like boots on the ground, Brian Fromm as a pastor in Chicagoland. Do you hear a lot of people like, yeah, I'm I'm with Reed on this one, or is the general sense like, oh, that's not good? Like because that's been my experience. People no, I think right general, and left yeah. saying like that's not great. I think that's the general sense. People okay. going, this doesn't make sense. Right. And again. Who we're going to vote for is a really sticky subject coming up, right? We just talked about Beto O'Rourke yesterday and uh, his words. Like, there's a lot of problematic stuff on both ends. I think, to quote Scott Sauls again, I think we as Christians need to look critically at both sides. And we need to be able to have that conversation without being told we have a moral obligation to go one way or the other. That's something that Jesus did all the time was calling out religious and political corruption. And I think in a lot of ways, this this kind of stuff is... uh, Wading into dangerous territory. Absolutely. Well, we'd love to hear what you've got to say. I'm sure you have opinions. You can tell us at Facebook at the Common Good Radio Show. Coming up next, uh, an article we came across that we thought was really helpful. Five things singles wish married couples knew. Uh, We're going to discuss that next here on the Common Good. AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Welcome back to The Common Good on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Alongside Ian Simpkins, my name is Brian Fromm. Glad to have you with us on this Tuesday afternoon. You can find us on Facebook at The Common Good Radio Show. That's The Common Good Radio Show. On Twitter, at Common Good Talk. That's at Common Good Talk. Find our podcast wherever it is you find our podcast uh, or wherever you find any podcast. You're going to find us there. Go ahead and subscribe, rate, review. Tell all your friends. Pass it. Put it in your Christmas cards. All that kind of stuff. Can you imagine if someone's like, Dear Nana, thank you for all the love and support over the years. Also, listen to The Common Good on AM 1160. I'm thinking more like the families that write those long letters. You know, Johnny did this. He he scored eight goals and he did this. Oh, and Susie, she's on National Honor Society. I found a wonderful podcast this year that I really enjoy listening to. I put the link here in this printed letter that we've written. Just go follow it. Type, yeah, type in HTTP <laughs> colon slash slash www. I think we have somebody out there who's going to do that for us. They'll do that for us. In the Christmas card, then send us a copy. We'll uh, hang it up in the studio. We'll hang it up in the studio. Man, these are some odd requests. When Christmas gets closer, we should ask people to send us Christmas cards. Not with us in it. And we'll put it up here on the wall. Oh, that'll be fun. Oh my goodness. I like Christmas cards. You I, I run like these things Christmas by cards. me first. <laughs> I am. I'm running it by you right now. <laughs> Is it a problem that we're doing it on the air behind microphones? No, I'm fine with that. Why do you hate people's Christmas cards? Oh, okay. <laughs> First off, we haven't even gotten to Halloween yet. Let's pump the brakes on Good Christmas. Point. Jeez Good Louise. Point. Oh, that's a great point. Anyway, we're glad that you're joining us today. 
Where's the, uh, our show be called? Should be called the Common Good, where stream of consciousness rules the day. <laughs> Squirrel. <laughs> yes. Uh, at the Gospel Coalition, gospelcoalition.org, uh, wrote uh, just an interesting list, an interesting article called um, uh, about singleness, and it said five things singles wish married couples knew. And this is a particular issue within the church that I think is probably less of an issue uh, within culture. And again, I kind of speak of this as somebody who got married at the age of 22. Right. But it feels like singleness within the culture is a lot more. I don't even know that acceptance is a lot more common Hmm. than in the church. And Hmm. once you hit a certain age, right? Again, someone who wasn't single for very long, it feels like that's the case. I rarely have friends of mine who aren't part of churches being like, you know, singleness it's really hard to like enter into you know people don't accept me but there's some single people that i know within the church it does seem to be a bigger issue i don't think this article necessarily is talking about mere acceptance though i think you're probably right i think historically in the quote-unquote secular universe uh being single longer seems to be a little more acceptable there is i think at least in the middle west a little bit of evangelical pressure i certainly felt that i didn't get married to my 30s Also, some of that is exacerbated by being a pastor. They're like, you're a single pastor? Yep, that's a little something weird about people you. Get with, which is not weird, but people certainly have a weirdness about it. Yep. Um, so, and again, just a caveat, too. Anytime I read an article that says, five things singles wish married couples knew, I'm sure there are single people that are saying, don't speak for me. Like, this is, you know, painting with a broad brush about what arguably all singles are thinking, which we know isn't the case. But as someone who was single a little bit longer than a lot of my peers and has spoke on it numerous times. I I think the uh, the article has some interesting points. At least as best I can tell the author is single. Like those are the bad ones where it's like here's what sing here's what we need to do for single people by the person who's been married for many years. <laughs> right, right. Yeah. That's a great point. So number 1, uh, God settles the solitary in a family and it might be yours. Mm. Uh, Psalm 68:6 says God settles the solitary in a home. One way God does this is through the church. He creates homes both from biological families and from beautiful friendships that become like family. Uh, This reminds me of that Jonathan Merritt tweet Uh uh, a couple months ago where I think they're friends of yours, right? Nequist. Mm -hmm. Uh, uh, He's friends with, what are their names again? Uh, Aaron and Shauna. Yep. So he's friends with them out in New York. And he basically was, was tweeting that as a single guy, you don't know what it means for me to be went, to be brought into the common parts of your family. Like not Mm -hmm. like, Hey, we're going to do something special and have the single people over. But like, when you guys went out for ice cream, you called me and said you want to join us. That's, That's right. kind of what this is getting at. Like, uh, we often talk about biological family, but the church is to be a family that's kind of uh, yes. connected in many different ways. That's exactly what she says. She says, I encourage you to make your single friends part of your life and your family. Don't assume we're too busy to have dinner with you on a Friday or Saturday night. We love your kids. Babysitting doesn't <laughs> count, though. Your single friend isn't just your babysitter. That's a great point. That I is. think. Uh, number two, marriage is sanctifying, but so is singleness. Come on. Marriage is hard, and you grow a lot through it. That's very true. Uh, Nobody doubts that. But singleness is also hard, and you grow a lot through it. Marriage paints a picture of Christ's love for the church. Singleness paints a picture of Christ's sufficiency Mm. and the joy of a life that accepts the Father's will, as Jesus did when he prayed, not my will, but yours be done. Mm. That'll preach. That's pretty good. Yep, yep. He says God is growing and sanctifying us all the time. Uh, That's really good. That's good. Marriage is sanctifying, but so is singleness. Number three. 
Our singleness doesn't define us. You can help us remember that. Mm. Think of a time you felt like the only one who didn't fit in. What felt true, even if it wasn't? How did you try to make up for your nonconformity? Did you feel defined by the one thing that made you feel different? Hmm. Welcome to the life of Christian singles in the South. And oh. I'd probably say parenthetically, probably the Midwest probably as well. Probably everywhere, yeah, right. Most Christians here in the South, as author writes, get married in their 20s. And while we who aren't in our 20s anymore are happy for them, we stick out. At least it feels that way. Hmm. When I'm surrounded by people whose lives don't look like mine, I either try to fit in or overemphasize my differences. Either way, I allow that one detail to define me. Hmm. All of us, not just singles, need to remember we're not defined by our work or our differences. We're defined by our identity as children of God, redeemed by the blood of Jesus. Because of that, we all have more in common than we have differences, regardless of age, marital status, or ethnicity. That's a really good word. Yeah. Number four, culture lies to us a lot. Both secular culture and Christian culture send mixed messages. The world says we're not living to the full unless we're independent and pursuing sexual intimacy outside of marriage. Christian culture, though, well-meaning, often says that if we're uh, content enough or if we stop looking for a spouse, then God will finally pull back the curtain to reveal the spouse he's handcrafted for you. <laughs> Seriously, people say things like this. Both assume singleness is nonstop fun and that anyone whose social calendar isn't full is failing at being single. Singleness, singles in their 20s may have full calendars, but the older you get, the harder you work to have uh, an evening or weekend mm. plans. All of these messages are self-focused, how we should improve or do better. Yet what we really need is to look to God and believe he's good to us and in control. I think that is something that I hear from single people all the time. Number five, don't expect all your single friends to get married. I can't speak for everyone, but I've never met a single person who didn't want to get married. But marriage isn't a quick fix. Right. Part of being human is that we will always want what we don't have. Desire for marriage is good and God given, but it's a terrible expectation. Think of it in these terms, desire, expectation and hope. A desire is something you want, such as marriage or friendship. Desire then grows into either expectation or hope. An expectation is an idol, a desire that morphs into a must-have and rules your life. The only cure for an expectation is true hope in the God who knows and loves his children, gives them what's best, and exercises sovereign goodness in relation to each of us. Hope says, God knows what I desire, and for some reason I don't know. He hasn't given it to me, but I do know he's good and hasn't forgotten me. When I'm with him in glory, he will fulfill all my desires far better than I could have imagined. I, I do think that people, especially those who are married, treat single people like they're just in the waiting pattern to get married. And yeah. Or it's like a, or it's like a problem to be fixed or something. Exactly. Right. I, and I think too, the general sentiment of like, ask your single friends what being single means to them Yep. and be a, you know, be someone that others can share openly and honestly with. I think when we subtly or, or not so subtly as this author is implying kind of communicate the singleness is like you said, either it's varsity or it's junior varsity to the varsity of marriage, yep. or it's the waiting room to like wholeness and completion. Or in some cases it's, it's treated like an illness. Like yeah. you need to be cured of your singleness. If we can not only ask honestly, but then be a safe person for others to actually share their own experiences, mm -hmm. I think I think we'll begin to accomplish some of what she's proposing. That's really good. And again, so many of these articles and things we discuss come back to identity. Who are we in Christ? And uh, I think this author did a really good job at that. Well, this uh, article will be up on our Facebook page. You can find it at the Common Good Radio Show. Coming up next, we're going to talk about clutter and clutter being a trigger of stress and anxiety. Don't I know that? <laughs> I'm stressed already. Coming up next here on the Common Good, AM 1160, Hope for Your Life.
Welcome back to The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life alongside Ian Simpkins. My name is Brian Fromm. Thanks for joining us today. You can find us on Facebook at The Common Good Radio Show and Twitter at Common Good Talk. Uh, would love to hear from you on Facebook about this next one. But before getting into the article, let's just let's have a discussion about clutter. OK, so be it a desk, be at your house. Right. You've got little kids. I'm sure a lot of times it looks like the house exploded. Mm-hmm. Does it change your uh, your thought process? Does it change your contentment? Does clutter mess with you? Yes. How so? In every way imaginable, which is ironic because I'm not actually that clean of a person. Yep. So I'm like a neat freak. I'm like an amateur neat freak who hasn't gotten his skills together yet. Like in my head, I'm neat and clean and organized. But then in practice, it's like, oh, I really avoided those dishes a lot this week. Or, oh, where where my computer set up is a mess. But like, I'm worried about the rest of the house. Like it's uh, it's not a great look on me that I'm in my head wanting to be more neat than I actually am. Yeah. But it does actually, especially you know when working, if I can like look over the laptop and I see a mess. In the background, yeah, I'll often have to like close the laptop and just clean up what's in my line of sight before I can actually focus on what I'm doing. Really? Uh-huh. Yeah. So if you can see clutter, yes, huh? That's interesting. I do remember. So we got rid of all, we needed more room at our church. It's a very defined space, and so one right. of the things we did was get rid of our offices, right? And I know you guys kind of have. I don't know if you have a defined desk or it's just kind of. I do have a desk, but it's an open office, though. Right. 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 And I remember I was terrible at keeping my office clean, and it just bothered me so much to really? be in there. Yeah, because you'd be like, oh, I, I really should spend an hour putting books away. And then you're like, no, but I got to do oh, I, I got don't. stuff to do. Right. You're not necessarily a neat freak, though. I'm not. And uh, but but it does still bother me. And what this article, the reason I bring it up is we are looking at an article uh, from Curious Mind magazine uh, <laughs> that says clutter is a trigger of stress and anxiety. So it's not just an annoyance. Right, right. Uh, it is a it literally builds stress and anxiety with a psychologist. Sherry Borg Carter says this cutter c- cutter. <laughs> Clutter can play a significant role in how we feel about our homes, our workplaces, and ourselves. Oh, interesting. Messy homes and workspaces leave us feeling anxious, helpless, and overwhelmed. Yet rarely is clutter recognized as a significant source of stress in our lives. Mm. And she says, so the question is, why is mess stressful and anxiety-inducing? So, uh, Man, this is, I got to be honest, like my wife would not mind me sharing this. Like this is, uh, you know, we've got three kids that are, and busy schedules and craziness. And so our house can look like it's blown up sometimes. Right. Uh, and she was rarely able to relax when our house looks like it's blown up. And then it always causes a little bit of an issue because I can. <laughs> right. You, you can forego the stress. But I know that I don't I don't anymore because I know what it does to her. But it's like this added burden of like our home should be X. Right. And man, it just looks like it blew up sometimes. And sometimes all you want to do is relax. And so yes. th- this article is saying that that clutter is not just an annoyance. It is a trigger of stress and anxiety that we need to deal with. So here's how it lays it out. First gives uh, eight main reasons that this is true, that it produces stress and anxiety, and then kind of eight suggestions for ways that we can better tackle this. So every once in a while, we like to do stories that are just kind of Hopeful. nuts and bolts practical. Mm-hmm. Yeah, whether you're listening and you are stressed out by mess or your spouse or friend or you know your roommate is, I think these are pretty helpful. So here are the eight, and then I'll let you kind of handle some of the what to do about it. Uh, clutter makes us feel overwhelmed mm-hmm. since it exposes us to a lot of unimportant stimuli, thereby causing our senses to work overtime. That's a great point. It takes our attention away from things we should focus on, kind of my laptop example. 
Uh, it makes it more difficult for us to relax mentally and physically. It signals to our brains that our work is never finished. That's definitely true. I've actually mm. found that to be true when I'm like, there's like a really stressful deadline. Like all of the clutter feels like incompletion to me. And I'm like, oh my gosh, I got, I'm, I got to finish this thing. But that's also not finished. Uh, it makes us think about how we're going to tidy up all the mess. Uh, it makes us feel guilty for not being more organized and embarrassed, especially when someone pays us an unexpected visit. That's <laughs> definitely true. It hinders our productivity and creativity. It frustrates us by making it more difficult for us to find what we need. So those are just eight. I'm sure people, somebody's cheering right now and other people are saying you totally missed mine. We'd love to know yeah. why you think so. But here here are the eight, though. I'll let you kind of walk them through. Here are the eight ways to... Uh, to actually maybe just get a little better at managing yeah. some of this clutter? We want to give you an answer. So this article gives an answer because right now you might just be feeling stressed. You might be in your just car hearing going, about it, right. Oh, yeah, no, there's dishes waiting for me when I get home right, or right. this or that. Number one, if your house is full of stacks of clutter, don't clean out things by yourself. Instead, get the whole family involved in decluttering. You can do this by making each person responsible for one room. And if you're on your own, start by cleaning up the clutter in one room at a time. Finish tidying up that area before you move on to the next one. Yeah, that's how I work. Number two, you can prevent clutter from invading your place by creating specific places for the items that you often use. In this way, you'll be able to find what you're looking for faster and more easily. Number three, get rid of things you don't use, need, or want. My wife is phenomenal at this. Oh, I'm terrible at this. Just getting rid of things. Terrible. Whether you recycle it, donate it, or just toss it out, it doesn't matter. Just make sure it no longer occupies a place in your home. As for the items you rarely use, you can keep them in boxes uh, so that you can make more space for the things that you use more commonly. So this idea of like, start to get rid of stuff and get it out of there. Yeah. Number four, after you've finished using something, put it back to its designated place right away. Well, yeah, that'd be easy. In this way, you'll prevent clutter from piling up. It's true. I, whenever our dishes pile up, I'm always like, well, it would be so much easier if we were just always doing the dishes, but then right. we just never do it that way. Right. Number five, make a pending folder. This will benefit you in two ways. First, it'll help you clear off your workspace. Secondly, it'll make it easier for you to find pending projects. Nice. Number six. Make sure you don't let papers turn into piles. Whoops. Guilty. Go through all your newspapers, magazines, menus, flyers, and mail and get rid of those that you don't need. We'll have mail just pile up right in, right by the front door oh, on really? a desk. And like once a week, I'll grab the pile and go. And it's always like, why does it always just happen like that? Right. Number seven, tidy up your workspace after you have finished working. In this way, you'll feel more satisfied because you'll know you've finished with your work and I believe you'll agree with me that it feels really good when you return to a clean workspace. And number eight, last one, last but not least, don't forget to make it fun. Oh, that's easy. Oh, the fun of decluttering. Oh, we're having a good time. As you're decluttering your home, put on your favorite song. This way, not only will you enjoy the music, but the time will pass more quickly and you'll more likely work faster. All of those are some examples um, of how you can <laughs> stop from clutter becoming a trigger of stress and anxiety. Any one of those stand out to you as like, oh, that's one that I would like to, you know, kind of work on. Oh, all of them. Uh, for me, I mentioned <laughs> it before, I'm not great at the getting rid of things, the uh, get rid of things you don't use, need, or want. 
lot of times for me, and this is, I realize the mentality of a hoarder. It's like something I haven't used in a long time, but my mind's always like, what if, Uh uh what if next week I actually need this ball of twine and then I don't have this ball of twine. I'll have to go buy a ball of twine and make it. Of course, no, it's 36 cents at Ace Hardware. Like, what am I, like, it's so frustrating sometimes that like pull that I have towards things like, but what if I can't get rid of this thing? Because it might be, you know, my wife is always reminding me. She's like, you haven't even thought about this thing in a year yep, and a half. I'm yep. like, but now that I am thinking about it, <laughs> she's like, I could have thrown that away and you wouldn't have even known. I'm like, but, but I, but you did, but I know now. <laughs> which come to think of it, she's maybe throwing away stuff right now. And then that's, I, funny. that's what I would do. Yeah, that's funny. Do any of them stand out to you? Uh, I think it was the one about going doing one room at a time. Yeah, because I can get overworked, overwhelmed by like, oh no, the basement is crazy and the garage is crazy and my clothes are out upstairs, but there's dishes right, here, right. and you can almost become paralyzed by there being all these different ones yes. you have to do. Yes, I like that one of like, hey, it's kind of Dave Ramsey's, right? Like, pay off one bill before you start the other. Right. It's like, hey, get that one room done, feel good about it. And then move on to the next room. That's right. And uh, unfortunately, sometimes I will make one room good by throwing a lot of things into the other room. But eventually, you're going to have to deal with it. Yeah. So hopefully, these are helpful. Sometimes we like to just do some practical life stuff for you. Yeah, it wasn't mind-blowing, but it was just, you know, good food for thought. There you go. So you can find that at the Common Good Radio Show. We would love to hear some more from you. Well, here's a crazy article. You ready for it? Yep. Nike Jesus trainers injected with holy water from the Jordan River Costing $3,000, sell out in minutes. Oh, gosh. Going to talk about that next year on The Common Good, AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Welcome back to The Common Good on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Alongside Ian Simpkins, my name is Brian Fromm. Hope you're having a great Tuesday afternoon. Glad that you're spending some time with us either on Tuesday afternoon or whenever you're listening to the podcast. Hmm. Might be in the middle of summer right now and you're on a beach. (laughs) Might be the middle of winter and you're shoveling your driveway That's right now. That's true. This is sort of like uh, like a little time capsule. It is. It's like choose your own adventure. <laughs> they could be wherever they want. <laughs> I think if people could choose their own, they'd probably go in different places. If than you could write we us back from the future mm. and let us know. I don't yeah. think that works that way. But <laughs> I want it to work that way. <laughs> I did just watch a documentary on Back to the Future, though. Of course you did. Of course I of did. Course it's so good. About the actual movie or about, about, the, about the concept of time travel? No, the actual movie and the fans that have contributed to even like the recreating of the DeLorean. and the It's it's actually a really endearing little documentary. It was, it was wonderful. Really? Yeah. I loved it. Interesting. Yeah. Okay. Uh, so let me take a hard right turn, and I'm just going to read you the story. Okay. Right. This first hour of this show has been like a microcosm of how we kind of tend to do a show. We started out talking politics. Then we did a list. And now we're just going to do insanity. Okay. (laughs) Here we go. Is that the normal progression of the show? It's it's got those parts to it in any particular. No, no particular order. Nike Jesus trainers injected with holy water from Jordan River costing $3,000 sell out in minutes. There's so much wrong in just that one sentence. Oh, it, it, get, it gets worse. I read the article. It is just getting started, my oh, friend. My Here we gosh. go. Uh, the MSCHF, which now that I look at it spells mischief, but with no vowels. <laughs> the mischief limited edition Nike Air Max 97 sneaker filled with holy water. A limited edition Nike Air and Max 97 trainer filled with the water from the Jordan River in the Souls has been released by Brooklyn-based company Mischief. The trainers have been called, quote, Jesus shoes, and despite a price tag of $3,000 per pair, oh my the shoes sold out within minutes. 
The shoes are injected with 60 cc's of water from the Jordan River and are reportedly blessed by a priest. However, fewer than two dozen pairs of the mischief INRI Jesus shoes have been made. Would you care to guess what the INRI stands for? It is the Latin inscription, which translates to Jesus the Nazarene, King of the Jews. The trainers have been designed from the all-white Nike Air Max 97s. However, Nike is not affiliated with the creation of the limited edition shoe. It has been reported that Mischief Designers bought the trainers at retail value and then repurposed them with the handcrafted design. Stop. Uh, they have said that their hope is that the Mischief INRI trainer would give the illusion of, quote, walking on water as Jesus did. The water has been injected into the sole of the shoes and has been given a blue coloring to enhance visibility. The trainers also have been printed with the Bible verse from Matthew fourteen twenty five, which records the story of Jesus walking on water. Various other Christian symbols are also featured on the trainers, a single red dot symbolizing Jesus's blood, frankincense scented insoles, and a crucifix attached to the laces. Head of Commerce Daniel Greenberg told the New York Post, we thought of that Arizona iced tea and Adidas collaboration uh, where they were selling shoes that advertised a beverage company that sells iced tea. So we wanted to make a statement about how absurd collab culture has gotten. We were wondering, what would a collab with Jesus Christ look like? As a Jewish man myself, the only thing I knew was that he walked on water. The trainers were posted Tuesday on retail site StockX, but immediately sold out. Mischief have now announced that they'll be making bi-weekly drops at every second and fourth Tuesday of each month. So much there. Which part did you want to talk about? <laughs> it's just... Gross. Gross. <laughs> it's just gross. It, I mean, where, okay, so where do I even start? I was not really prepared with any sort of like smart statistical data, <laughs> or brain research or anything. I'm just, I'm not sure uh, the story I, deserves it. I'm just bummed. I'm bummed out. And I know this isn't the first time that religious ideals have been capitalized on to make a buck. And I know that it's happening all the time. Uh, it sounds like they were sort of doing it ironically. Is that sort of what he's saying? Like, I think so, which is the amazing part. He's like, we kind of did it as to make a point and a joke, but then it sold out in minutes. What is sold out by? How many How many of them were there? Do you know? Uh, they said a couple. 97. Or, yep, is that yep. right? Yeah. So we're not talking about a huge amount. but Still at $3,000 a pair. One, 97 people have way too much uh, extra money in their yes. pockets. Number two, though, I think it is actually pointing a finger in maybe a helpful way. This is different than the preacher sneakers thing we did a couple months ago. Uh, That's a whole different discussion altogether. But sort of this commodification of like Christian-ish ideas and symbolism is, again, not new at all. This seems to have reached like a new level of absurd for sure. And I'm, I'm curious how you think this is actually... Pulling back the curtain, if at all, is this communicating something, you know, more broadly interesting or is it just like a weird, bizarre story? I I actually think that there's something troubling to this. Like in the end, it's probably a weird, bizarre one off. But there is a couple different things here. One that it just sold out. It, it also is just the commodification of of Jesus. <laughs> and I'm being speaking as one who made a salary for two summers working for testaments. But it is this like, hey, if we can Jesus these shoes up as much as possible, we can sell them for a lot of money. Again, not a lot of them, 
but it sold out quickly. And it, the fact that the guy is like, we almost did it as a joke or to make a point, almost as like a piece of art, but people were buying them. So it's got everything from the Bible verse to the Jordan River and walking on water to the crucifix, to the frankincense, to the red dot. I mean, they just went over the top on these. And uh, yeah, it's just crazy. I also have to be honest that I struggle with the fact that anybody pays $3,000 for shoes. Right. Um, but that's a whole nother thing. I don't know. Do you think that I'm making more of this and needs to have me made of? No, I don't think so. I think uh, a lot of times it's it's moves like this that do kind of help shake us up a little bit out of our fog and our sleepwalk state. Like, oh, this is ridiculous. Wait, why do I find this so ridiculous? Oh, I wonder if this is pointing to something else. I think there's a lot that like Lampoon and theater can do to kind of yep. shake us out of that a little bit. But uh, I think. Uh, the very fact that so many of them sold, which it, it wasn't ninety seven, I can't find the number. They're they're uh, made it's less. It's uh, it I is just less. Found it fewer than two dozen. So we're not talking about a lot. Okay. Still though, the whole the whole idea because I actually you know I have seen televangelists who have sold their holy water from a well they dug yep. in Ohio and they've apparently built an empire doing that. Like that to me is part of what makes all of this so gross. Like when I when I picture Jesus saying. Um, you know, foxes have holds, birds have nests, mm-hmm. but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. And then seeing Jesus shoes, three thousand dollars, where you can walk on water. Like I'm, I've kind of come a long way, right? I? I'm just wondering, like, what would that look like for Jesus to come back today and see somebody selling these or wearing these or buying them and being like, okay, I don't think, I don't think you. I remember hearing a story years ago when WWJD bracelets were a big thing, yep. and a, uh, a friend that was preaching at a church, and then the person came back the next week and was like, your message was so convicting about walking in the way of Jesus that I went and had this 24-karat gold WWJD bracelet <laughs> made, and they were so excited, and my friend was like, nah, it's not really the point. I like your excitement, but... I appreciate the feedback. Uh, right, that's maybe misplaced energy, and so, you know, I think there's a lot more of that that happens than I realize, but this... To me, it just seems egregious. Yeah, yeah. And we'd love to know what you think. You can do it at the Common Good Radio Show. Again, it's kind of a joke, uh, but it also says something, I think. I think it says think so something too. about our culture. We would love to hear from you and uh, and get your take on it. You can do that at uh, the Common Good Radio Show on Twitter, also at Common Good uh, Talk. Well, coming up next, let's keep this moving. We're going to keep talking about money and the faith. That's coming up next year on the Common Good AM 1160. Hope for your life. It's time for a conversation about the things we share in common. Our common hopes, our common fears, our common struggles. Together, we'll wrestle with the questions that we all have about the issues that affect our lives. This is The Common Good. Now, here are your hosts, Brian Fromm and Ian Simpkins. Welcome back to The Common Good on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Alongside Ian Simpkins, my name is Brian Fromm. Glad to have you joining us today. You can find us on Facebook, and we're about to put an article up there, or about to discuss an article that's up there that I think you're going to have some thoughts on. Uh, you can do that at the Common Good Radio Show. That's the Common Good Radio Show. Also on Twitter, at Common Good Talk, online at 1160hope.com. And as always, you can find our podcast wherever it is uh, you find our podcast. And, uh, you know, this article, I, it, there's many different thoughts on it, but let me tell you what it's titled. It is out of finance101.com. It says these are insanely rich religious leaders. And so it gives it counts down from 25 to one of various Christian leaders in what their net worth is. 
So that's always somewhat dangerous, and it's always somewhat uh, interesting. Uh, and without getting into names, I suppose, what I would say is... No, I'm, I'm going to get into names. <laughs> okay. <laughs> but go ahead. Sorry. Uh, a lot of authors, a lot of pastors, a lot of Christian leaders on here uh, are having a net worth well, well, well into the millions. Uh, and so, uh, like the top 10, uh, 18 million, 20 million, 25 million, 25 million, 60 million, 100 million. Wait, stop looking. I want to say some names and let you guess. Are we going to play a fun game? Does that sound fun to you? Oh, I do like this game. All right. Should I say? Yeah, I'll say the name, and then you guess the net worth. Okay. See, some of these I know you already looked at. Uh, uh, but I didn't, I didn't really look at them very closely. You didn't. Okay. I want to play this game. Uh, all right. Benny Hinn. $60 million. Holy cow. Exactly. On the nose. Oh, Six, $60 million. Boom. You, <laughs> <laughs> nice. Uh, Rick Warren. Uh, $20 million. $25 million. Mm. <laughs> I didn't know he had those ready. All Do you right. think that's all from his radio show that he does right before us? Um, yeah, it's probably. There's a lot not of, right before us, but he's early in the show. <laughs> TD Jakes. Oh, that's going to be a high one. 75. Uh, 18. Oh! Yeah. <laughs> way off. Way off. Uh, let's see. How about Paula White Kane? Uh, 60. Uh, I already forgot to look. Five. Um, oh, she needs to get going. She needs to get going. Uh, how about uh, Mark Driscoll? Oh, well, you told me this one. I right. did. Two. 2.5. Okay. So, yeah. What? <laughs> he gets just the ka-ching. See, some of these names I don't actually even know. Yeah, which, yeah, yeah. That's a whole other discussion, actually, that these some of these names here are among the wealthiest Christian leaders, and you and I are both pastors, and we've never even heard of them. Right. That's pretty crazy. How about Joyce Meyer? 40. Uh, eight. Oh, okay. <laughs> George Foreman, who I did not know was a religious leader. Oh, he's got the grill. That's 250. Uh, 300. Oh, I was close on that one. How about Kenneth Copeland? We did a segment on him. Remember when he uh, he kind of spooked a reporter, right? He, oh, that was weird. That's right. Okay, so you want to guess his net worth? Uh, 100. 300. Ooh, Kenneth. Kenneth Copeland has an estimated net worth of $300 million. That's insane. How about Victoria Osteen? So is this with her husband, or are they separate? Separate. 20. 100. Really? Isn't that wild? Uh, isn't he listed on there as 100 also? Yeah, so maybe it is together then? No, maybe not. No, hold <laughs> oh, my goodness gracious. Maybe not. That's fascinating. Okay, that's enough of that game. What do you think of all these? So this is the interesting conversation. It is, should we care? Uh, <laughs> does this Is this a larger indictment? So uh, it is, you know what? Good on you, right? You built a business. You built some. You wrote a book. Built I'm playing business. devil's advocate yeah, here. Okay. Uh, you, you built something successful. Uh, and, you know, as long as you're not, and some of these people I think we would say are, are scamming people out of money. But even, let's say you, you're not one of those people. Uh, you wrote a book. You get paid to speak. So what do we care about how much money you make? On the other hand, <laughs> uh, it does seem like the Bible has a lot to say about money and wealth and that this seems to fly uh, contrary to that a little bit. So which which of those would you land on? <laughs> this feels like a trap. Um, but just when you read the article, what is it? What does it do to your soul? What are your thoughts? Yeah, I don't love it. I do. Like, I know some of the context of Rick Warren, who's now paid back every year he's ever worked yep. at his church yep. and he tithes 95 percent or something crazy. So I know that, you know, for guys like him, there's also a ton of generosity. So I don't want to in any way paint all of them as sort of like just money. Yeah, right. That's, yeah. that's really not the case. 
Um, but some of them are. <laughs> <laughs> Which ones, Brian? Which ones nope. do you think are the most greedy? Nope. I, I, ju- I do just have to say at its core, I, again, I'm really not opposed to people making money. Um, making this kind of money, though, specifically as a church leader, I do have a problem with. Yeah. George Foreman wants to sell a bunch of grills. Yep. Good on you. I'm actually, I have no problem with that at all. I, I think that's fine. I don't think the grills are great, but, uh, you know, teach his own. Yeah. Uh, but to, like, do so from the position of, like, shepherding a flock, like, yeah. of, of being the pastor teacher of a local expression, a local church community, to, to make that kind of money to me seems, I have a really hard time just picturing Jesus being like, I'm cool with that. Yeah. That's sort of my, that's my acid yeah. test sort of like, and again, my perspective is very limited too. like my understanding of what Jesus would or wouldn't be okay with is anyone's guess, right? I'm not saying I have the, uh, you know, the, 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 the authoritative position on that. I, I just have a hard time picturing Jesus giving the thumbs up to a couple of private jets or six houses <laughs> or Jesus shoes. Or sh- right. Exactly. <laughs> all that stuff. It just make, you know, and somebody might say, yeah, hey, get with the times, man. It's just normal. Or it's, they have to convey a certain level of confidence, a certain level of success. I think those are all pretty weak arguments, to be honest. I feel like yep. at the end of the day to, to be formed in Christ likeness, to follow this rabbi, Jesus means he's often saying, you need to die to yourself here. Mm-hmm. You need to let go of that there. And sometimes depictions like this, uh, just, seem so counter to that and get with the times is probably part of the problem (laughs) yeah yeah, probably but uh i totally agree with you man i feel like um it would be really difficult uh to preach a a um a biblical centric message and to talk about what jesus talked about and do it from a standpoint of having uh, a lot of uh a lot of a salary of this kind. Like it almost makes me think that that in some ways would change what you're able to teach. Hmm. Uh, secondly, uh, I just don't see a lot of, uh, I should put it this way. I feel like in the gospels, when I read them, Jesus is often taking on the rich. He never says you can't be rich, that it's wrong. He speaks of wealth as a huge hurdle, right? As a difficult, almost a cross to bear. And, um, and, so for the le- for pastors who are now also teaching this right to be the ones who are making this kind of money with this kind of lifestyle uh I think is very difficult. It should not also surprise us that a large number of people on this list are prosperity gospel people. That's true. And I think that also goes hand in hand. And so I think it's just wrought with danger. The flip side could be okay, pastor, what do you think is the right amount? All right. I don't know. I don't think there is a right number for right. that necessarily in the same way that I don't think the New Testament actually speaks of tithing. I don't think it's about this percentage. Paul talks about being generous, joyful, sacrificial, mm-hmm. proportional. Those are the words that he uses. So it's like, you know, to live if you were living in the Bay Area, that number might be different than if you were living, you know, in middle America, if you're living in Arkansas somewhere. You know what I mean? Like, I think that there's room for that. I don't think it's about Brian or Ian yeah. deciding on a dollar amount. I think we can probably all agree some of these dollar amounts are a little crazy. Yep. Yep. And uh, yeah, I just think it's really hard. I just think it sends such also a bad message. Uh, what was it yesterday? We talked about um, uh, better work stuff about churches shouldn't be tax exempt. 
And usually what people hold up are these ministry leaders who are making millions of dollars, who yeah. have multi-million dollar homes and jets going, why are they getting tax breaks? Right. Uh, I think that oftentimes it's these leaders who are making a ton of money and flaunting at some of them uh, that really are a black eye to the church yeah. that, that caused people to go out there and be like, see, this is just about money. Right. This isn't about you say you follow this Jesus. Well, look what he, they even know. Like he wouldn't have done this. Right. And it's just really hard. It's it, it comes across as hypocrisy and uh, and very difficult. Well, and that's the problem that we've become so comfortable with differentiating between what we would see Jesus doing and what we expect from Christian leaders. Yeah, that's, I think, part of the problem that, mm. that people that, you know, maybe even admittedly don't have Bible degrees and don't necessarily have experience necessarily yeah. in a role like this would say your Jesus looks very different than your Christian pastor. Yeah. And we're, you know, I think becoming increasingly OK with that, which is maybe part of the problem. And what we haven't talked to you even about is the is the what this says about Christian celebrity culture. Yeah, right. Uh, it's it's another aspect of that. Well, we'd love to hear what you've got to say. You can do that at our Facebook page. Coming up next, article of Christianity Today called The Risk of Happiness. We'll discuss that next year on The Common Good, AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Welcome back to The Common Good on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Alongside Ian Simpkins, my name is Brian Fromm. Glad to have you joining us today. Uh, You can find us on Facebook at The Common Good Radio Show. That's The Common Good Radio Show. Uh, and, uh, and you can find our, uh, uh, podcast wherever it is. You get your podcast before we jump into the next one. I did want to share some good news that we haven't passed on yet. Uh, and that is, we've been talking a lot about cross international and all of that. We made our goal and uh, we've now surpassed our goal. So nice. well done. Common good family. Notice People can still give, give You can definitely still, still make give. it, make a gift. Just cause it's past the goal. Doesn't mean it's any less effective. One time gifts of $39. Uh, you can feed a kid for an entire year. And so, uh, you can go ahead and do that at 1160hope.com. I believe that banner is still up there. Uh, go ahead and do it. And uh, we would love for you to continue giving uh, because it, we we believe in, in kids getting fed more than we believe in trying to fi- finish a campaign here. So, yeah, right. Uh, that was we should have done that announcement while talking about rich leaders last. Oh, segment, that would have been that well, would have been it. What are we what doing? What we should have done is talked about what we should have done. <laughs> Valid point. (laughs) Valid point. Christianity Today uh, came out with an article a couple months ago uh, entitled this, The Risk of Happiness. The Risk of Happiness. What is this getting at here? It says, I don't trust happiness, said Mac, played by Robert Duvall in Tender Mercies after losing his young daughter. These four words rang sadly true, and they lodged in my soul. In 1983, when I was 27, it seemed right to me. I had not known the nadir of unhappiness, but my father had been killed in a plane crash in 1968. Since that grave loss, I thought that serious people, thinkers, ought not to risk happiness. It was, after all, a fallen world. Optimists were deluded. Happy was usually silly and not the attitude to be, uh, attitude of the brooding prophet, of which I was one. To me, the frown was the crown of the Christian mm. critic. Francis Schaeffer was seldom photographed while smiling. I don't remember him smiling in any of the scenes of the film series, How Shall We Then Live?, Woe to our modern post-Christian culture. We serious people must beware of pointless mirth and witness chuckles. Yes, I knew who I was. A Christian, uh, a Christian sister in my college youth group said I was so serious. She liked to laugh, even giggle. I liked her, but that giggle, somehow we became friends. By grace, I learned my calling soon after conversion. Teach, preach, and publish. Defend the faith. Exegete and challenge the culture in the mode of Oz Guinness and Francis Schaefer. 
outthink the world for Christ. One must be serious to do this. <laughs> Remember Kierkegaard, the great and melancholy Dane, whose book, The Sickness Unto Death, helped lead me to Christ. But Os Guinness, as I knew from lecture tapes, had a seriousness and a cheerfulness about him. When we met, I delightfully discerned this again. And C.S. Lewis wrote so much about joy. Hardly unserious, that Lewis. I don't trust happiness. I often intone to myself as one dream died after another, as my wife went from chronically ill to uh, terminal dementia. I wrote a a lament about it walking through twilight. I was in good company. C.S. Lewis and Nicholas Woltersorf, who wrote laments for their own losses, a wife and a son, respectively, the latter wrote the foreword to my book. Yes, I tried to smelt every bit of meaning and love out of my suffering according to my Christian convictions. And then he mm. all the time with this. I escaped into meaning as my life devolved into caregiving for a dying spouse, once brilliant, now not. I found meaning in my work, my aesthetic enjoyment, my mentoring, my friendships. A lot of people love you, I have been told. So he's painting a picture of like really a rational perspective for why he is the way that he is. Yeah. And I think anyone reading that, or especially anyone who's maybe walked through something similar, I imagine they can probably relate. He's sort of making a case yeah. for why it's important for us to be, you know, kind of this super serious people. I love he says, my friend and author Gail McDonald signs all of her letters with don't postpone joy. This, I take it, is the polar opposite of I don't trust happiness. Gail is not superficial, happy, clappy soul. She and her husband, Gordon, have been faithful partners in my laments over the years. They are seasoned saints whom I respect. He says, I distrust happiness still, yet I know the beginning and the end of the great story. Uh, So it does raise this issue of happiness. Uh, Many of us were raised in a faith that Christians weren't allowed to lament. They weren't allowed to be sad. They were taught uh, if you're sad, if you're depressed, if you're not happy, there is something wrong with you and your faith, your understanding of Jesus. That was a that was a commonly, uh, if not overtly taught, yeah. at least subconscious uh, teaching that many of us grew up with in the church. Uh, that is really dangerous that it's good to see people doing work against now. Well, and I, I like what he said here. So he says the pessimist assumes the worst. So he's not so disappointed. I think a lot of pessimists will probably agree with that. Assuming the worst is emotional insulation meant to provide protection from pain. I read Authentic Happiness by noted social scientist Martin Seligman over a decade ago. One fact stood out. Optimists tend to be less aware than pessimists of reality. I will take reality over happiness, I resolved. I've told my students I'd rather suffer for the truth than be happy with the lie. The brooding prophet Mm. will not be deceived. And he goes on. Now, I wonder about this grim posture. I know, especially from Ecclesiastes, that life, even at its best, is havel, a vapor. But this life under the sun also affords simple pleasures of work, family, eating and drinking. And the vapor will one day give way to eternity. So Mm. as someone who can definitely be prone to pessimism, to be honest, I think describing it as insulation and rather being the idea of like, I'd rather be sad with the truth than happy with a lie um, mm. is probably a sentiment that a lot of people share, right? And, you know, I think even the idea of the opiate of the masses when, you know, kind of degrading and denigrating religion yeah. is, is a sentiment that we've seen throughout the ages. And, and and you probably tend to be more of an optimistic person, don't you? Is that sort of your general <laughs> programming? Less as I get older, but yes, <laughs> that's a whole topic. But why do you think day. that is, though? Why? Because I've experienced pain. Really? Right? I've experienced disappointment. I've experienced... Uh, the 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 batter the, the batter the darker sides of without having ever lost anybody really close to me mm. I have experienced some 
monumental, painful things in my life that as you get older, it kind of weathers you a little bit and, mm. and it kind of makes you a little more guarded and you're going, well, uh, because the, pe- the pendulum shift here is, is dangerous. It's the, uh, everything's happy. We should always be happy to nothing's happy. Right. And that's what he's warring against here. Uh, a little bit. It's this, Hey, there's still good things in this world that point us to the ultimate joy that's coming. And we don't just kind of, you know, pretend that those don't exist. Yeah. Uh, but also we can't just pretend that everything's happy. The Christian's always that's happy, right. uh, that there's a, there is a middle ground in there. Uh, but yeah, I, I think I'm still an optimist by nature. Uh, but I would say that I'm less of an optimist or less of a happy-go-lucky guy yeah. than I probably was certainly in my 20s. Well, I remember Piper being the first person I really ever heard talk about like Christian hedonism, mm-hmm. right? So like his whole case was that Christians should be the most hedonistic people on yes. planet Earth because we see a grander vision of this isn't just a good stake. It gets to roll up into worship and praise for the God who provided it. This yes. isn't just a conversation. This is worship to God for providing relationship and intimacy and he, this author goes on to say happiness is ganging up on me he says well why not embrace happiness now and expect more in this broken world on this groaning orb every happy thought every feeling of joy unless sinful of course is a strike against the fall and satan and his devils people say i look lighter physically and emotionally i'm learning to welcome the pleasant uh, as just as real as the unpleasant no it is more real god made mm. all things very good before the fall sin is a parasite on goodness which is aboriginal in God and creation. Joy will find a way even through the detours. Why should I postpone joy? I find no duty before God or man to do so. God gives all good gifts, including every second of happiness. I accept it in the embrace of my new wife. My smiles need not fade so quickly. I need hide no reality to find the levity in God's good world. I think that is such a beautiful invitation in our divided political times and our heartbreaking theological and religious times when we're facing all sorts of heartache and struggle. And there's probably people listening right now that would say, I'm in the midst of that. What would it look like to, to stop postponing joy, not to pretend that the pain isn't real, but to actually, like he's saying, embrace it fully whenever it happens upon you. I think that's a really beautiful invitation. Yeah, it's this invitation to struggle and re- and be honest about the pain of this world and yeah. in the moments. But in them, you can still have joyful moments. You can still find joy uh, both in Christ and in what our reality is. But you know what? There have been times where I've just had an awful day, say, at work. And then I've gone home and played with my kids. Yeah. And you're like, you know what? It it doesn't have to be all good or all bad. Right. Like in the moments of despair or, or heaviness, I can still find moments of levity and happiness and joy. Absolutely. And he goes on. And I think a lot of us feel this, right? Like, you know, why should I bother dipping a toe in happiness if it could just be dashed to the ground? And he says, ultimately, it's worth the risk. It's yeah. worth the risk. And even if it's fleeting, you have it right near, right here for this moment and to enjoy that and to not just enjoy it for enjoyment's sake, but to say, God, thank you for this moment of whatever happiness or joy that you've blessed me with, I think is a really, really helpful spiritual discipline. Absolutely. Well, you can find this on our Facebook page. It's from Christianity Today, The Risk of Happiness. Coming up next, you're going to want to stay with us and hear about something really fascinating that a CEO uh, has done. That's coming up next year on The Common Good, AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Welcome back to The Common Good on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Alongside Ian Simpkins, my name is Brian Fromm. You can find us on Facebook at The Common Good Radio Show, Twitter at Common Good Talk. Find our podcast wherever it is uh, you get your podcast. So, uh we like to tackle uh, heavier subjects. We like to tackle uh, 
But then there's just some feel-good ones. Just some feel-good ones. And that's uh, this one out of businessinsider.com. The the article's uh, headline says this. uh, A CEO who writes 9,200 employee birthday cards a year explains the value of gratitude. Jump into this one for us. I love this story. And just as a caveat, I'm a big believer in the general sentiment of this. One of the things that we used to do at Poplar Creek, actually, every Mm -hmm. staff meeting, uh, every staff person would sort of nominate two or three people that they saw kind of going above and beyond. And we would dedicate the first 10 minutes of staff meeting just to write them thank you letters. And we would all write wow. it. So we would like, someone would nominate, kind people of tell. People in the church or on the staff? Uh, people in the church. Okay. People, so it was people that weren't on staff, people that weren't, you know, on payroll or anything. And so the person would nominate, kind of explain why. And then they would start the card. And then everyone on staff would sign it. And I cannot tell you, man, how many times people who sometimes gave like dozens of hours to a project mm. or to a, some kind of ministry, getting a handwritten card, they come to me on a Sunday with tears in their face. And like, thank you so much for this card. And in my head, I'm like, but you're the one that gave like 80 hours of your life yep, to make yep, this. It's yep. crazy that you're thanking me for that. I think just being recognized and seeing it for whatever reason in actual like like ink and paper just really resonates with people. So yep. here's how the story starts. It says, if you happen to sit next to Sheldon Yellen on your next flight, chances are he'll be writing birthday cards. Lots and lots of them. Yellen is the CEO of Belfour Holdings Incorporated, a disaster relief and property restoration company. And since 1985, long before Yellen was chief executive, he has written a birthday card to every employee of the company every single year. Hmm. Today, as CEO, he says he handwrites 9,200 cards annually, one for every employee. There's an inside joke with acquisitions that I asked prior to closing how many more people he told Business Insiders <laughs> Chris Well in 2017, meaning how many more birthday cards do I have to write since I am constantly calculating that in my mind rather than what is the EB, what is the EBID? I don't even know what that is. Oh, here it is. Earnings before interest, tax, depreciation, and amortization. Yellen started the practice in 1985. He says he started doing it after he was hired by his brother-in-law since many of the current employees felt he was being given special treatment. If nothing else, the birthday cards would encourage people to stop by his desk, say thank you, he thought. And it worked. People got talking. We started to communicate more, and I like to think it helped me earn respect within the company. Fast forward to today, and Yellen is now bringing suitcases full of stationery with him on every plane ride he takes. But the practice isn't just for the thank you. Yellen writes thank you notes, anniversary cards, holiday cards, and writes to his employees' kids when they are sick. Company Director of Marketing Communications Alexander Gort told Business Insider in 2019, This guy is a superhero, Crazy. man. But and also somehow has like time to also be a CEO. That's what's amazing because uh, you do the math of ninety two hundred divided by three sixty. I mean that's a lot. This is no small task he's doing. How much time do you think it takes him? Uh, he's probably doing it. I'm going with an hour a day. Oh, do you think that's achievable? Don't you think? I mean, but every I'm talking that's every day. Uh, here's what would be hard. This is why it speaks to this guy's, uh, like, who he is in his DNA. Yeah. Because when you're the CEO, it would be really easy to be like, hey, my administrative assistant, yes, or exactly. hey, my exactly. middle manager, uh, one of your tasks now is to handwrite the company birthday cards. And instead, I just love the picture of that he travels with a suitcase full of stationery. Yeah. And he, it says he also pens thank yous for anniversaries and other occasions. Like, this guy... Uh, gets it, and part of it is this issue of gratitude that he wants to grow a culture 
of gratitude. And uh, that is something I doubt that there's many companies, if not churches, that hold up as a value and hold up as like a, a part of a pillar being gratitude. Yeah. Like, let me just read the rest of this. Yeah, it's go so ahead. good. It says, Yellen has found taking the time to write out a card for each and every person has created a culture of compassion throughout the whole company. Something that doesn't have to cost a thing, he said. When I learn of random acts of kindness being performed in the field, I take it upon myself to, again, reach out in writing and send a thank you card so that that person knows that they are appreciated mm. and their efforts don't go unnoticed. Yellen has a point. Career experts say the best managers are the ones who often dole out positive reinforcement to hard workers. Workers told Business Insider that the traits they admire in their bosses are when they can call attention to career accomplishments and express genuine interest in their well-being. Survey research even indicates good employees will quit their jobs if they aren't recognized enough for their efforts. The Ellen, for one, says his gestures uh, made for a more compassionate, gracious workplace. Some managers have even taken up the habit themselves to write cards mm. for their team members, clients, and loved ones. Other CEOs may consider the gesture frivolous or a waste of time, but Yellen is quick to disagree. He said his experience has taught him that the, val- uh, that the value keeps coming back in spades. When leaders forget about the human element, they're holding back their companies and limiting the success of others, he said. Focusing only on profit and forgetting that a company's most important asset is its people will ultimately stifle a company's growth. And I would say most certainly also applies to churches. Yeah. So what does it look like in your opinion? You, you gave a great example of what you did used to do at your old church. What does it look like for a church to grow in this way, to to grow a culture of gratitude and thank yeah. you and helping people feel appreciated? What, how, what are some steps you think churches could do to head down that road? You know, it's not quite the same topic, but yesterday I was talking about this idea that habits eat willpower for breakfast, mm. you know, and I think sometimes... Things as nebulous as we want to create a culture of gratitude. It just sort of stays in this ethereal space and we never actually system systematize anything. We don't actually put stuff in place to actually create a a culture of gratitude. We just hope Hope upon hope that it's sort of if I'm a grateful person generally, then that'll kind of trickle down to my team. And I think uh, like the example of Poplar Creek actually committing and we didn't do it at the end of staff meeting, by the way. Because we knew it would get choked out. It would get out. Because topics would, you know, take longer than we wanted or whatever. So we said, we're going to prioritize this by making it the first thing we do. It also was, like, for me, a helpful way of, like, framing our staff's mental state for the rest of staff meeting. Mm. So, like, beginning with recognizing, like, man, there are a whole lot more people than just us on the staff team that make this church amazing. Yeah. Like, let's not forget that. And when that really framed our general posture, which then, ironically, created a more grateful team. Yeah. But I think, you know, one of the things we do at community is we begin every staff meeting with wins. Where do we, where do we see God at work? Um, we have a, uh, we made like a WWF belt that we award every staff meeting. So all, everyone gets to nominate different people. And then the person who had the belt last awards it to the next person who gets That's the belt funny. for the week. So like, you know, making it fun in some way, I think is really important too, to make sure that we are highlighting people. And, and some of that even is tricky because some people don't want to be highlighted. Right. They're they're giving back and they're serving, but they don't want any recognition and they're not. It's not false humility. They just don't, right? They don't want the attention. Mm-hmm. So sometimes you got to be mindful of how you do those things, which is why I think cards are so helpful because it's not drawing a lot of attention, yep. but it's like yep. handwritten, like you said. It's from the CEO himself. It's I imagine I'd love to see an example of it. Like I wonder how generic it is or how like yeah. He, there's no yep. way for him to yep. know yep. nine thousand people intimately, right? There's no way the but I wonder if he has teams researching, like, hey, uh, tell me this person's story so I can be a little more mindful when I write this card. Um, either way, 
I like that he's standing up against this idea that like, oh, what a waste of time. That's frivolous. Like, I think churches and companies that exactly as the article says, miss the significance of like making sure people know they're valued and cared for. It's yeah. so easy to jump right to how this person screwed up and how they missed the mark and you didn't mm. hit your target. Um, and then I think that sometimes chokes out the affirmation gratitude that we share with each other. Yeah, it's just it's some it's simple steps, right? Like what is actually stopping you from writing birthday cards to everybody in your church, getting it into debits? What's stopping me from writing thank planning. you cards? It's planning. Like, yeah. It's planning. Yeah. It's busyness. It's not really believing that it's that important, maybe. Right. right. And going, okay. I mean, heck, I have a hard enough time writing my wife a note. Hmm. She may have said to me recently, when's the last time you wrote me a note? Oh, snap. I texted you. <laughs> you did not say I texted you. I did you. not <laughs> say that. Gave you a heart emoji. Uh, one I might be cold, but I'm not a moron, man. Uh, <laughs> but like the fact that this guy does it for everybody, not just his vice presidents. That's right. Not just his managers. Right. Like, the people that like everybody. quote, quote, are like the, the janitor. The yeah, cafe, right. Who knows? 9,200 people. That's a lot of people mm-hmm. in an organization. Mm-hmm. It just shows care and love. My guess is they pro- probably helps retain people. Yeah, I think you're right. And I think, I mean, the very fact that we're talking about it now, I would imagine, and I've heard stories of this where people have left higher paying jobs to work lower paying jobs in a culture they felt was healthier. Mm. I think we're going to see more and more of that where people go, this isn't, this isn't worth the extra 10 G's or whatever it is. This is a culture where I know I'm valued for my work. Yep. I'm willing to take the financial hit because I'd rather work in an environment like that. Yep. Well, that we'd love to hear what you've got to say. Find it on our Facebook page, The Common Good Radio Show. Time to land the plane, park the car, pop the balloon. Dock, dock the boat. Dock the boat. That's the one I was looking for. <laughs> uh, chain up the bike. We're doing all of it next here as we do Interweb Insanity on The Common Good. AM 1160. Hope for your life. Here's some weird stuff we found on the internet. Here's some more weird stuff we found on the web. Welcome back to The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. And this is where we end the show with just insanity. Just craziness, interweb insanity. (laughs) Stories that have come to us from our producers that, uh, like, one happened yesterday where you and I were like, whoa, 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 whoa. What was the story? No, it was the the sound drop. What was it again? Oh, Oh. making fun of the old lady. Yeah, where you and I just like, like oh, not okay, oh, so not okay. Hopefully guys. that won't Res- happen today. Respect your elders. I'm Keith. gonna. Oh, it was Keith. I'm gonna go first. All right, Florida pilot retiring after 35 years gives his wings to toddler with Down syndrome. Oh, an American Airlines pilot retiring after decades on the job decided to give his wings to a two-year-old boy with Down syndrome. Captain Joe Weiss gave this special gift to uh, Kai Klatenik of Ocala on the tarmac at the Miami International Airport. Weiss pinned the wings on the boy's shirt in the cockpit after a flight from Madrid. Oh According to the Orlando Sentinel, the boy's mother said he's been talking nonstop about the gift and his new friend, Captain Joe. Are you crying? Am I crying? No, I'm not crying. You're crying. It's a pretty sweet story. That's I a like good it. story. All right, Wisconsin. Bored security guard calls police after handcuffing himself on purpose. <laughs> oh, Wisconsin. Oh, Wisconsin. Illinois' top hat. A security <laughs> guard in Waukesha had to call police after he handcuffed himself on purpose. This feels like a Paul Blart situation, right? Yes. It happened Friday morning inside a Bath and Body Works store. <laughs> I don't know why that makes it so much funnier to me. Please say the man told them he was bored, so he put the handcuffs on. He forgot the keys at home. After officers freed him, they say he hid the handcuffs from himself so he wouldn't put them on again. He hid them from himself? Yeah, so he wouldn't do it again. Wouldn't he know where they are? Good point. He also said this wasn't the first time he handcuffed himself and didn't have the key. Talk about the wrong stuff. Oh, my <laughs> golly. 
Ooh, two for two with Florida. Wowie. Owner, dog, reunited in Pittsburgh after dog went missing in Florida 12 years ago. What? A dog that went missing in South Florida over 12 years ago has been ago has been reunited with her owner in Pittsburgh. Duchess, a 14-year-old fox terrier, was lost February 28, 2007 in Florida. No way. She was found on October 8, 2019, hungry and shivering underneath a shed in Carnegie, Pennsylvania. No kidding. It's not known how she made the journey of over 1,000 miles to Pittsburgh. Duchess was brought to Humane Animal Rescue's Northside Animal Rescue uh, Resource Center. During an exam, a microchip was located that traced her back to her owners in Boca Raton, Florida. Wow. Humane Animal Rescue staff who contacted the owner said they were in disbelief. I cannot believe you're calling right now. I can't believe this is happening, owner Catherine Strang said. According to Humane Animal Rescue, Strang immediately made plans to drive over 18 hours to Pittsburgh and arrived Friday. Humane Animal Rescue reminds pet owners to have their animals microchipped and is offering half-off microchips through the end of October. (laughs) Who saw Old Yeller? Who cried when Old Yeller got shot at the end? What? Nobody cried when Old Yeller got shot, I'm sure. Why? I cried my eyes out. No! No, no, see? No. Why is that the drop? This one made it. This dog was oh good. Oh my gosh, you guys. I mean, someone's going on leave. This did Thank remind you. me. This reminded me of the of uh what's the Tom Hanks one where he's alone uh on the island? Castaway. Yeah. Where like he's been gone for so long and then comes back, but his the girl, like his soulmate, is now remarried to somebody else. Like you can picture people like, oh, we got another dog. <laughs> <laughs> they probably did get another probably dog. Twelve other years. Dogs my then. goodness. All right. Ohio woman used torch to burn off price tags at Walmart. Well played. That's a that's the truest sentence I've read all day. <laughs> Police in Columbus arrested in Edinburgh, 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 Edinburgh woman at wow I can't talk at Walmart after they say she burned price tags on merchandise. Officers were dispatched to the Walmart on Sunday around 5 p.m. Employees called police about a woman burning off price tags with a butane torch and then placing the merchandise in a bag. Police say that, why not just cut them off? I'm not suggesting that, I'm just saying. Police say the woman later identified as 34-year-old Jennifer Durbin attempted to exit the store with the unpaid merchandise, but she was stopped by store security and CPD. After officers handcuffed Durbin, CPD says she attempted to kick and headbutt the officers. They took her to the Bartholomew County Jail. She faces preliminary charges of theft with a prior conviction and resisting law enforcement. Oh, there'll be a hot in the old town tonight. <laughs> That's funny. Last one's out of Georgia. Oh, boy. A thief takes coffee break in the middle of a three-hour burglary spree. Well, why not? A man who went on a three-hour burglary spree decided that he wasn't too busy to take a coffee break. The man, who was burglarizing a series of businesses in Sugar Hill, Georgia, in the early hours of September 16th, was captured on surveillance video stealing computer equipment, television, sports memorabilia, and food. Hmm. In the video released by police, the masked man can be seen packing up a cart full of stolen items before walking over to a coffee machine several times and attempting to get it to work. <laughs> Flummoxed, the man then continued with his theft before returning to the machine and stealing several of the coffee pods after he was oh. unsuccessful brewing the coffee himself. The machine, however, was left behind. Police say that the thief may have also attempted to steal a van from the parking lot as well. The man remains on the run and probably at Starbucks. I tell you, it's hard, tiring work. True. Well, that's true. That's why I need I coffee. My favorite part of the show today is you saying the word flummoxed. Flummoxed. It was right there on its own. It just <laughs> flummoxed. flummoxed. I'm going to try to well work done. that into a sentence sometime this week. Oh, that will flummox you. That writer definitely had a thesaurus nearby. Yes. Yeah, for sure. Flummoxed. Well, we're glad that you joined us today. 
Lots of heavy stories, lots of fun ones, all lots of fun for Ian Simpkins. My name is Brian Fromm. Thanks for joining us on The Common Good. AM 1160, hope for your life. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.